0: Good evening, Dr. Hildebrand. I'm not sure if you're able to unmic. It's at the lower right-hand side of your screen. And if you click that mic, then you should be able to speak.
1: There we go. Sorry. is this Victoria
0: yes hello welcome
1: hi Victoria it's a pleasure to be here sorry I'm, I've never used this app before so I'm, I'm still navigating it
0: um yeah well that's fine um you've opened the room about uh, 38 minutes 28 minutes there's I don't know 18 minutes earlier whatever
1: yeah <laughs> um, should I close it? I was gonna and I
0: No, I don't think uh once it's opened, um, I think in if we close it then we'd need to reschedule it. So
1: Got it. Got
0: yeah. it. Yeah, we'll just we'll just leave it here. Um but during yeah and during the room, yeah. You, care of all of the functionality of the app. (laughs) So um, yeah, I'll just let other friends, the team know that you're here. Okay. um, Yeah, good for you. How's your day going?
1: My day is going well. Yeah, adjusting just got back from travels yesterday. So adjusting back to back to life back to reality.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, back to life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, great. Um, Were you traveling?
1: Yeah, I was at a conference in Italy actually. So yeah, so I got back from Italy last night to here in Ottawa. So yeah, it was
2: pretty Yeah,
1: it's great to see the world opening up again. It was nice to see colleagues and old faces and new faces. So it was really good.
0: Hmm. Well that's lovely to get home and, and have that be welcome.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Were you then? Were you there for work? Uh, were you there for a, for a long time in Italy? Yeah, I was
1: there for a conference, but it was a pretty extensive one. It was six days straight, and then I got there early, and I, I stayed around for a day. So yeah, so so it was a decent amount of time to see a bit of Verona. That's where I was, and on the way home, Venice. So it was pretty great.
0: Oh my gosh, how beautiful!
1: Yeah, yeah, Venice is just stunning. It's just and Verona actually, they're both. Mm. Yeah, so it was really great.
0: Mm-hmm. it looks really magical that's one part of Italy i've never visited but um yeah i've, I've seen other people's photos and heard
3: yeah
0: and so now it's on my list
1: <laughs> awesome
0: mm.
1: should i just mute the room i guess yeah um, now that i've opened yeah, it or...
0: I, I was gonna say yeah you're welcome to just relax and and then we can pick back up in about 15 minutes and and uh, i'll let friends know that that will be starting at six. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, you can just yeah take it easy, relax, whatever awesome. you like. And Sounds then right. um, you'll hear somebody, yeah. you'll hear one of us saying hello, Dr. Hildebrand. <laughs> okay, good. I'll talk to you soon.
1: Okay, thanks. Okay, bye.
4: Oh, goodness. Um, Dr.
0: Hildebrand, are you still there? Can you hear me? I sure am. Thank you. Can you please uh, click on my profile pic, and then you'll see a drop-down menu open up, and it will say, Make a Moderator?
1: Followed by, make, okay, it's beside it, Make a Moderator.
0: Yeah, if you can click that, then I will have the magic powers that you have, I, and I, I just, can bring, okay, just... good. All right, well um as you were (laughs) relax
1: perfect (laughs) thank you you.
0: Uh. hey jamie i've called you up we're gonna send you an invite jamie
3: There we go. Hello, Dr. Hildebrand. It's very nice to meet you. Welcome to the Science Society.
0: Hey, Jamie. We're... Oh, sorry.
1: Hi, hi, hi Jamie. It's good to be here. Sorry, I'm just emailing Katerina because she's the one who invited me and she opened up a side room. But I, I, I thought it, well, I was supposed to go in this room, so I'm just letting her know where I'm at. Uh, okay, <laughs> no problem, so, so all... you
0: still need a welcome.
5: It's... Oh, good. Okay, Katarina, Hi, Mike.
0: You're, you're here. Okay, hey,
5: I'm so sorry. I sent it's, the wrong, a link with the wrong date, and I was trying to figure out also what
1: was wrong. No, no problem. And then I thought, oh, she opened up the main room early. I guess we're going in there. And then I went in here, so I opened up the main room. So that's my fault. So <laughs> no, we're all here, and we're totally all connected.
0: <laughs> we're all here, and we're all at fault.
5: <laughs> yeah.
0: So then I maybe... The, sorry, go ahead, yeah. Catherine. Um,
5: no, it's, it's fine.
0: I was just going to ask then was then do you still needed to have a welcome room then Dr. Hildebrand?
1: No no it was basically just to figure out this the functionality of making sure I could speak and and navigate the site but yeah Mm. I think I think we're good
0: right good and then as I said we'll take care of inviting up guests and and you know order of speaking and things like that so you can just relax and enjoy
1: Actually, yeah, the, one, yeah. the one question I have, just in terms of the format, like, because I'm open to questions throughout, like, it's I kind of gather I talk about my research for 20, 30 minutes, and there's questions after. But is there a place for people to put like questions in the chat as we go or ask questions, or is it better Ooh, if I just? Well, that
0: is entirely up to your wishes. There is, if you see on the lower left where it says there's a three with a red little dot on top, that's the room chat. And so people will put questions in there but uh, traditionally we don't expect the guest speaker to be monitoring the room chat so okay. we would do that and bring up questions to you you're of course welcome to but it's our intention that the guest can you know focus what you're doing best is giving your talk and then it's it's up to you if you would like the Q&A to be following your discussion or during your discussion it's it's really depends on what makes you the most comfortable and your you know what you'd like
1: yeah I can if people have like a burning question during they're welcome to ask I can't see the chat in the bottom here so I'm wondering because I'm on a desktop so I'm wondering if it's
0: oh I see and so in that case um, yeah also we as far as us bringing questions we we will save the questions till the end.
2: Okay, of the so maybe discussion. that's easier. Maybe that's, that's easier.
0: Than... Most common is to do that. You know, okay. rarely people like that. But yep. Yes, it's really totally up to you and okay. and you're welcome to just go, you know, until 6. So. <laughs> <Either way. laughs> uh, Katana, Excellent. so you're having trouble with your app.
5: Yeah. Okay. Uh can somebody pin the yeah, the app is not working. I updated it. Yes. It's working well. Okay. Uh, but could try to pin the link. Yes, got if it. it. Oh, you. It. It, it, let me know if it's working. If not, I have to restart my app. Which is
1: also follower.
0: It's done. Perfect. My app. Oh, oh wait, work. I shouldn't. Have, I spoke too soon. It's not. Let me try again. Oh. It wasn't. In the chat. It, and then try. Yeah, I got. I copied it. Um, let me just try it this way, and try one more time. There, I don't see any reason why it shouldn't work.
5: I would prefer to roll back the update. I updated my app. I can now add members and things like that, but then other things don't work well. So I don't know.
3: Mm. I, thought yeah. being I think a lot of people are having pinning um documents um upon there as a problem at the moment. I've been hearing it in multiple rooms at the moment. So I think it's like uh, just a, a bug at the at the present time.
0: Oh, did you just pin? Is that what you just put in the room chat?
5: Yeah.
4: Yeah. yeah. Okay, I, will,
0: so I was gonna. Okay,
5: people will be able to have the link and look at the paper. It's not like a huge deal, but um, yeah, it's nicer if it's pinned on top of the room. So. Well Mike, sorry that uh my <laughs> that my app is having trouble and I kind of screwed up. I'm not sure if the app actually is, but it's fine. Uh thank you for coming and nice meeting you.
1: <laughs> nice to meet you on this on this platform, Katerina. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure to be here.
5: Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. It's um I'll hope you'll enjoy it. Usually people do unless they, you know, they just wanna be nice. But you know. <laughs>
1: No, I think it's great to find new ways to communicate. And I love this idea of kind of with the lay audience, too. So it's it's really good Are is a typical audience? Are there people with a science background or just kind of any like what's kind of your typical audience member?
5: It's it very a yeah. lot. Yeah. So to um, yep. so see for example, she is a researcher in public health. Then okay. um, we have a couple of neuroscientists and engineers then okay. is a chemist, but also AI. I and you know it's it's very diverse background and then um you know some people are science enthusiasts and go through (laughs) Science Society Academy like Jamie. (laughs) He learned so much in the last month. uh, (laughs) It's really amazing to see.
0: Um, And I'm I'm an art teacher and I and I teach different curriculum and and focus on science using art so we are really of diverse backgrounds
1: that is really cool so okay, sorry for the, I'm just, i was just seeing the link is that the issue that the paper's not pinned
0: yep it's supposed to pin at the top where it's supposed to pin above your head
1: it says pin a link. Can I, should I try to Go paste that in? Yeah, yeah it's if it not, works for you,
5: maybe it works. It, from it, the, oh, oh, it works with the desktop app, not the phone app anymore.
1: But is that, can you try? That's the, but yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah.
5: That's the, that's a paper.
1: Yeah, it's the paper. It's it's not the PDF version, but uh, then you can click. People can click on the PDF or however they yeah, want to let be
5: me. Because
1: it would be good. Because I'm going to just refer to like, let's jump to figure five. Yeah, type
5: thing. Me. I'll send you, I'll send you the PDF link.
1: I can, no, I can get it if you'd prefer okay. that. I have it yeah, here. Yeah, no,
5: it's more, yeah, it's more More yeah, it's accessible.
1: accessible. I just didn't know. Okay, so there, so now I have that.
5: <laughs> You're already being the moderator. First room okay. already.
1: <laughs> Validate. already
5: you. make you work.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Working overtime here. Let's try that. <laughs>
5: Mm, that so the desktop app works the phone I know that in the morning it worked because I was um, in the morning listening to the tech newsroom and it worked for them unless okay. Tyler does it also on club deck on the, on the I don't know so this is like an we are basically a big experiment <laughs> this is still like an ongoing development clubhouse
1: yeah which makes it fun
5: yeah so it's really good because you can actually um give feedback and they react quite quickly don't you think victoria to like address mm. problems and then mm. communicate? Mm. yeah
0: very much you mean with respect to the app or with respect to the room
5: With the app, like with the Clubhouse team,
6: Mm -hmm. yeah, I've found that
5: usually they do—they
6: do respond quickly. Yeah, the app is in beta still, so it's still being tested and you know modified very quickly. I mean, very frequently, actually. Like sometimes two to three times a month, there are updates out.
5: My next question is Bianca. So you saw the the room in the in the hallway. Uh if you want to give feedback in the chat. Are we concerned
0: that the room is not visible in the hallway?
5: Uh, yeah, I mean when I was hanging out in the in the wrong room I made from introducing to Mike there were more people just dropping in. That's why we had that issue before. Hi, Serena.
2: Hello. Hi, Serena. We got started early, huh? Yeah,
0: yeah. Dr. Hildebrand is, is really looking forward to this room.
3: Obviously.
1: That's my what? fault. I was testing things out. Didn't know I opened the whole room up.
0: <laughs> um, 20 minutes early? That's yeah. a record. We.
1: Yeah, you, that's you a very academic. That's a very academic thing to do before the Zoom meeting. You log in twenty minutes, make sure you can share your slides. I
6: love it. Yeah. I was yeah. just thinking that. I was like, he probably thinks, you know, it's kinda of like Zoom where you come in early, but no, Clubhouse, once you start it, it's ready to go. It's
1: ready to go. Everyone can see it. They're like, who is this guy? He obviously doesn't know what he's doing, which is true.
6: Um, so <laughs> you did take care
0: of the pen link, Serena. He has um, done the pinned links for us because none of us could do it, so it's good you guys. I, got I still
2: get the getting there early to make sure there's no tech problems when everyone really around. thoughtful, uh,
0: most thoughtful getting <laughs> so far award. I think.
1: Yay! Do I get a pin for that or a sticker? Um,
0: yes, the team will discuss well, it. Excellent. just you wait and see. Yeah.
5: <laughs> <It's a> surprise! <laughs>
1: yeah, oh, great. <laughs>
5: okay so, so what far, should we do what you would send them <laughs> oh sorry, sorry we had yeah, we well we had a few people that we sent stuff because they were just so amazing and nice and came back uh a beam uh glass and t t-shirt were the options so far <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I was i was teasing <laughs>
5: Merch that we,
3: the swag,
5: like it was. It's the only two that are out there. (laughs) It's very special.
2: (laughs) Yeah, they're limited editions.
1: Yeah, Yeah. one of one.
5: (laughs) And and personalized, of course. (laughs) Yeah, we put the name on there
4: and the achievement.
5: Yeah yeah that was pretty cool like the t-shirt was actually not bad what we wrote on there but i forgot now because it was a room about time travel and um time travel and uh being faster than light so we made like a a sentence out of that but i forgot i have to look it up i'm sorry <laughs> I'm getting old
0: <laughs> yeah we'll remember it yesterday
5: well,
4: I'm
0: sure
2: today's theme will give us some ideas. Yep. For...
0: Hopefully, it's not interactive, this discussion. Sorry, it's kind of a joke because it's about pain.
5: <laughs>
1: Sorry.
0: <laughs> Thank you. That's better. Sorry, I
1: was a little slow on that. It's a little slow on the uptake. <laughs>
0: or I'm not. i <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry. laughs>
1: no there's no uh demos no demos required
2: <laughs> <laughs> Screaming. asking for a volunteer from the audience
1: yeah you you laugh but when i when i teach a lecture on this i actually do i bring in clothes pins, um, and i get i get oh, students you know. to put it on their ear and the whole idea is at the beginning it hurts a teeny bit but as it hangs there it just starts to hurt more and more right and it distracts you so to kind of illustrate what chronic pain not not at all to that same level but the idea of it can change over time and it can yeah
0: yeah it's great and develop yeah. empathy too for rather yeah
1: powerful. exactly
3: yeah you're much uh, nicer than I doctor because I've got the kind of wicked sense of humor that I would set a cattle prod down and I would say who wants to volunteer <laughs> just to see their <laughs> faces <laughs> just
0: for
3: that yeah i'll have to try
1: that (laughs) Uh,
0: replays are on everyone just so you know replays are on
6: (laughs) oh and dr hildebrand what that means is once we're done um anyone who wants to go back and listen to this discussion can have access to it um on clubhouse so they can learn from what you're giving here so it's really 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 nice
1: Excellent. Thanks. Thanks for letting me know that. That's great.
3: you been yeah, having a good evening so far, Doctor. Yeah, I
1: definitely have. Yeah, I just got back from my son's soccer game, and now I'm looking forward to getting into chatting some science. So, yeah, it's been a good evening.
3: Oh, that's, well, that's excellent. So, someone
6: just asked something, please.
3: Go
6: ahead. Oh, no, no, I was just asking if they won. <laughs> oh yeah,
3: yeah, did the, they
1: win, doctor? Oh, sorry, I, I, yeah, they did. Yeah, hey. yeah, yes. <laughs> but that was great. Yeah, they won. I think was seven nothing. But yeah, they just had a turn. They were pretty wiped because they had a tournament on the weekend. So this was their regular season game. So they were running on fumes by the end. But yeah, it was good.
6: Hey, for everyone in the room, we're gonna start in a moment. uh <laughs> which just sharing the room and having a a sh- short discussion beforehand but we're gonna start soon so just letting you know ping your friends ping your friends friends
5: yeah thank you everyone i think we can actually start i'm just seeing that uh i just shared it on twitter and instagram and so on so yeah i think we are ready to go so thank you everyone for coming to science society um we uh very thankful for our um, guest speaker, Dr. Mike Hildebrand, um, who, has come, who is presenting today, has really important research. And um, let me give you a little bit of information so you get to know him a little bit. Um, he is an associate professor at Carleton University and an affiliate investigator at Ottawa Hospital Research Institute and um dr mike hildebrand is um a neurogeneticist with an international research ex- experience um, and collaborations he did his phd at the university of melbourne and um he um is the head um um, he had the Translational neurogenesis Laboratory in the Epilepsy Research Center at the Melbourne, Melbourne Brain Center. And currently, uh, he is supported by um, different um, major grants um, working on um, epilepsy, speech and language disorders, um, and, that's, um, a, that's a oh, different that's, Dr.
1: Okay. Hildebrand. Oh,
5: <laughs> what?
1: That's a different oh, wow. Dr. Hildebrand, Katarina, which is all good. Seriously? Yeah, there's, and it's funny, there's in the same issue of brain, oh there was God, another God. Dr. Hildebrand. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. I just figured in case people are confused. But oh, my it's,
5: God. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. Oh, it's totally fine it was also neuroscience and then yeah um, it's it ha
1: and that issue of brain happened to have another dr hildebrand like what are the odds who's very similar
5: oh my god so let's do this as an interview okay yeah it's really, all good really, so sorry, you totally fine so um uh, mike thank you for coming so um if you would like to tell us a little bit about um Usually, Victoria does this, but mm, how you chose um, this career in science and and how your path was to become the scientist you are today. Um, Where did you study? So I think this information is really interesting for students that are still choosing this career. So, thank you. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I actually kind of stumbled into at least the the research path. I was going to teach high school science and it shows for students out there. Sometimes you have kind of one path in mind and that door actually closed. I didn't get in to that program, but I didn't come from an educated background. And so I learned about grad school and how you could actually after you could actually get paid to do research as, as a graduate student. So I applied for scholarships and, and got into a program to do my Ph.D. at UBC in Vancouver studying neurobiology, kind of relating to the brain. And then after that, my career path changed. I considered time in industry and spent a little bit of time doing industrial research for a small pharma company in Vancouver. And that's kind of when I thought, like, let's take the plunge. When I say I, it's really my wife. And at that time, one kid, we took took the, took the risk of, of kind of pursuing academic research. And we moved to Toronto. And I did further kind of research relating to pain, kind of similar to what I'm doing now. And after that, I was able to get a position kind of where I get to combine kind of my passions of teaching and research. So it's it's really come together well. And, and yeah, it's it's I guess it's a lesson that as long as you're pursuing what you're passionate about, that you don't know kind of where life will take you. And sometimes those detours actually they were what helped me get the get this position, my time in the industry as well as
2: my as well as my passion for teaching.
5: That's amazing. It takes a lot of um, courage, uh, I think, to go, you know, to just let the, your curiosity lead. Um, so yeah. I think that that's really impressive. Was there anything earlier in your life that kind of sparked curiosity, maybe a teacher, somebody in your family?
1: One yeah, hundred percent. My high school biology teacher had a big impact on me, and that's when I kind of first fell in love with biology. I'd say before that, I was outside in nature, and my dad was really like things like spawning salmon in BC and just learning kind of kind of in an informal way about the natural world. That definitely sparked kind of that curiosity. But then it was a high school science teacher. And then in terms of research, it was uh, honors thesis, a research project as an undergrad student that I didn't, I wasn't really considering research, but I didn't want to take a certain course. So I took this research project. So for the totally wrong motivation, but I really fell in love. I never expected to kind of enjoy research to the, to the level that I did. And that's kind of what really sparked that, that idea that, yeah.
5: That's really cool. I also found in life that that when you feel like you're making a major decision forget about it like those tiny decisions that you think are not important sometimes other major decisions (laughs) i don't know but it's really interesting that's amazing i'm glad you found your passion not everyone yeah luxury so yeah
1: i feel very lucky
5: that's wonderful so Yeah, that's always so inspiring to hear the stories of um people working in science. I think so. Thank you for that. And um, unless does anyone uh, from the moderators want to ask something else before we start with um Mike's presentation?
0: Okay. Uh That all sounds really good. I just um I just want to make a quick announcement that there has been a little trouble on the app with people blocking other people. Sometimes it happens by accident. So we do have a member of our team that's not able to get into the room and we would sure appreciate if everybody could just double check that um, that person blocking isn't you so that we can have Science Society flowing as it should and everybody can come into this welcoming and inclusive space and enjoy um passion for science. So thank you, everyone, and enjoy your talk, doctor.
1: Excellent. thank you, thank you so much, Victoria. Okay, so before we kind of dive into what the what the paper is about and look at and look at some of the results from the paper, I thought it would be good just to provide a little bit of context for this research. So the research is really about chronic pain. And so I guess the first point that that we need to consider is the fact that, Chronic pain is highly prevalent and and debilitating. So approximately one in four to one in five individuals in society, whether that's the US or Canada or other other countries around the world, uh, experience chronic pain. And besides being associated with many diseases from cardiovascular disease, to diabetes, to cancer pain, to all these conditions that can have this chronic um, pain um, symptoms, chronic pain is actually being understood that it can become a disease in and of itself so even after those tri- triggering events or disease problems or processes even after they resolve you can have this persistent chronic pain that can last for months and, and years and decades potentially and so obviously this has large economic impacts just in terms of health care costs lost worker productivity cost but i think for all of us what really, really comes down to is that impact on a personal level. So I bet if I could have a show of virtual hands here and ask who here either directly suffers from chronic pain or has a close friend or fa- or family member that suffers from pain most of us would probably put up our, our hands. So it's something that I think impacts most of us. And the reason one of the reasons why chronic pain is so debilitating is because we just lack the proper therapeutic tools we lack safe and effective treatments for chronic pain and those treatments can include various things like cognitive behavioral therapy mindfulness education physical therapy many many other other types of treatments but my research is kind of more directed at the underlying biology and so thinking of pharmaceutical treatments that that we can potentially develop for pain because the current ones we have are just very limited and i think the current opioid crisis illustrates the the potential harmful effects of potentially of of some of these treatments so then how do we get to better treatments how do we develop as researchers and as a society how do we develop better treatments well, one of the main problems here is we have this big translational gap between preclinical research, which kind of gives us our foundational understanding of how pain works, and clinical research, where we can actually develop new treatments. Um, or sorry, clinical research that includes the, the, the people that need to be treated. And so if we think of this translational divide on the one side, we have these preclinical models. If we're thinking of pain, we have preclinical models, which are typically often rodents. Historically, a lot of it's been done in male rodents and often young. So our understanding of how pain works is kind of from young male rodents. Let's I'm overgeneralizing. generalizing. There is some some female as well. But that's kind of where a bulk of the research has been done. But on the other side of that divide, when we look at the actual patient population that we want to, that that we need to be treating, the average, at least pain patient is female. So uh, many pain conditions such as fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, many other um, conditions are more prevalent in females. They're obviously human and, there are, and pre- the prevalence of pain also increases with aging. So we see there's these, there's this discrepancies here between kind of our, our preclinical knowledge and, and, and the patients to be treated. And so the underlying assumption is the, the drug targets that we're identifying and the, and the drugs we're developing to treat symptoms of pain in their animal models, we're assuming those same mechanisms are at play on the other side in the humans and in, in females. And so the problem is for a lot of cases that hasn't been tested. And so this is the type of research, the type of research I'm going to be talking about today. That's the idea to try to start to test those assumptions and see if these pain mechanisms are the same across sex and across species. Okay. And so one more thing before we kind of jump into a little bit about the the research results is where, what type of mechanism of pain are we looking at? We're looking at the spinal cord. And so the spinal cord, is a critical hub for pain processing it connects your where your pain detectors are whether that's in your skin um, whether that's it on organs of your body but you have these peripheral sensory neurons called nociceptors that detect those tissue damaging or painful stimuli and encode them into neuronal signals then those peripheral signals send that information into the spinal cord the spinal cord then sends the information up to the brain, which ultimately en- unco- sorry, ultimately encodes the unpleasant sensory and emotional experience that we know of as pain. But when I describe that, you could think, okay, the spinal cord is just the telephone lines. It connects where the pain is actually occurring, like on your fingers, if you add a cut, it connects that with the brain, which ultimately will, will code for that pain but the spinal cord isn't just telephone lines it's really a network of processing and turning up and down the gain on that pain signaling and one way an example of that is what happens if you're hammering a nail and you hit your thumb what do you automatically do and so maybe some of you are doing it right now you might shake your finger your thumb or you might rub it and why do you do that well actually that rubbing it activates mechanical inputs that are separate so the touch sensory inputs that are separate from the pain and those touch inputs activate inhibitory signals that basically turn down the pain sensation so that's a good example of how pain can be regulated at the level of the spinal cord in the proper context Today, and what this paper is about is how when you lose that proper balance between excitatory, excitation and inhibition, it can cause out of control, spinal pain signaling and chronic pain. Oh, OK, sorry, I'm just seeing something pop up, but I don't think that's a question. If you have any burning questions, you can always relay them on to the moderators and then they can either ask them to me during the presentation or at the end. But OK, so let's go. If you if you look at the the paper then, and I'm just going to really give you kind of a, a big picture overview of the main findings, and you can always ask follow up questions as we go through. But we're going to jump. We're going to cheat and go right to the end and go to figure five. And I'm going to do that because I kind of wanted to explain a little bit about the mechanism. So all these specific terms and targets that we're seeing, a bit of them make sense. So we if we look at figure five and you look at A and B, so A is just a diagram of the type of signaling pathway that we have in these spinal pain processing neurons and so what happens in chronic pain states at least for males and so this was based on a paper previously in 2019 that that uh, that that we published what happens is that this pain amplifying compound bdnf causes a loss of the breaks on excitability you can think of. And so that causes what that is, is a downregulation of this molecule KCC2, which normally keeps chloride electrical gradient at a certain level. So when chloride builds up in the cell, you lose proper inhibition, um, synaptic inhibition. And that also downregulates this other molecule step 61. So those are the, the break part of the mechanism. But it's worse than that. Not only do you lose the brakes on excitation, so you so you have decreased KCC2 in step 61 that directly connects to an increase in excitatory um, glutamate receptor activity. So you have an activation of this phosphatase or this enzyme known as fin. And so now because you have the loss of the brakes that causes BDNF to subsequently activate fin. Fin phosphorylates and increases the activity of this excitatory NMDA receptor that's shown now in point three, the gluin-2b NMDA receptors. So you have loss of breaks or loss of synaptic inhibition, inhibition, increasing excitation, but that was only in males. We saw that in male rats and in male human models. And so actually, the, the impetus for this second paper was actually we started doing and I'll talk about if more of the human research that we do. But when we were doing that research, we discovered we were doing the human research. And so our, some of our effects that that decrease in the brakes, increase in gas kind of mechanisms, they got smaller. And so we were really puzzled of of what could be going on there. And And so I can remember you have those certain moments in your life, I'm sure you can all reflect back. And I remember driving home and and, and kind of mulling this over in my head of why were these effects getting smaller? And the light bulb going on of well, obviously, we have males and females for our human donors, where all our rodent work all our work in males at the time had been in rodents. And so we went to the results, the Excel sheets separated by sex and saw these huge effects that were in males and weren't there in, in females. And so that's kind of, that was the launching point for the study, which now we can jump into. I see a hand raised there. I wonder if I can, is that a specific someone asking a question? Can someone jump in just to let me know? Okay.
6: Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Don't worry about the
1: hand raises. We will take care of that. Thank you okay. so much. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry about that. OK, I'm learning the app. Thank you for being patient. <laughs> um, OK, so that was so that was a part of figure five A and B. And you might have saw, um, saw a kind of spoiler alert there, but that's fine, too, in terms of what's going to happen as, as we work through the results. But let's go back to the beginning now. And so let's go to figure one. Now that we kind of know the context of around chronic pain, needing new treatments and trying to see if those the mechanisms that those treatments might target if they're the same across sex and species. So the first question then is investigating the spinal mechanism of pain across sex. So using our rodent preclinical models. And in this case, it's a model of inflammatory pain. So I should say with our animal research, we try to maximize the scientific value while minimizing the, the impact on the animal. So as non-invasive as, pro- as possible. So this is a model of inflammatory pain that involves swelling um, in the paw. So you inject a substance that causes some swelling in the paw, causes hypersensitivity that we can measure. So we can measure, so you see here in A, you see the, the y-axis is paw withdrawal threshold. So that's basically the amount of force in a thin little filament, when you poke the paw, that causes the rat to pull its paw away to because it's painful. And so you can see here at baseline, there's a certain level like around, let's say around 13. But then the dark green, you can see that's after in the CFA rats after you've injected that CFA in the paw, you see there's this hypersensitivity. So now a lot less force is required to induce that painful response. And that persists over the next three days of testing, day one, two and three. So in A, that's in males. In females, you see the same thing. You see they're still pain hypersensitive in these female rats. And I think that is one of the issues with biomedical research, the traps we've fallen into. And I'm not the first, there's lots of research before this. So I'm not, I actually took this idea from another recent review. But the idea is if we see the same kind of behavioral phenotype or the same outcome, we can assume the underlying mechanisms that got you there are the same. And so that's not always the case. And and obviously I'm saying that because if you're looking to your right, you might realize what's, what's leading for me to say that because in this case, so we have these models of inflammatory pain, which could be a model kind of like arthritis. It's less invasive than that, but it's that kind of model of an inflammatory pain model. And so we see for the male rats, if you look at B figure one B here, you see those markers of the inhibitory mechanisms or the brake pedal mechanisms, KCC two and step on the top, they go down. Specifically, I should say these are at spinal pain signaling synapses, specifically at the synapses where where those signals are coming in. And so you see here those you lose the brakes KCC2 and step for male rats. If you look below that in green, still in, in 1B, you see the in, the excitatory elements, the, the phosphorylated pin, fin, I should say, which is active fin, it goes up and the phosphorylated and total NMD receptors, the gluin-2b go up. So that's the increased excitation. So you have decreased inhibition in male rats, increased excitation um, in figure one B in female rats. You don't see that. And so it's just striking. If you can see here, NS means not significant so that when you do the stats, there's no significant changes in those inhibitor, inhibitory markers, KCC2 and step. There's no significant changes in the, in the excitatory markers, Fin and GLUEN2B in these female rats. So That's biochemical evidence suggesting the pathway that's driving the pain hypersensitivity. Even though there's hypersensitivity in males and females, at the spinal level, what's causing that hypersensitivity in males seems to be different. There's this mechanism there in males that appears to not be there in females. But to more directly investigate that, because this might be, you could argue, it's correlative evidence. Well, we wanted to directly look at those excitatory synaptic responses those nmda receptor responses that we know are critical for regulating excitability in neurons including these pain signaling neurons and so now if we scroll down to figure two we did we used a technique called electrophysiology where we can actually record the in synaptic um, NMDA receptor responses from individual spinal neurons. So it's a really powerful technique where we can actually—I never—I always love seeing this, and, I ne- and I, my excitement never dims of seeing. Looking at a screen, you, first of all, you visualize the, the spinal cord tissue on a microscope. You can bring in a micropipette and seal on to an individual neuron, and then once you've sealed on, you can see the actual individual synaptic responses in real time as they're occurring. And so using that, that technique, which actually uh, no, uh, uh, Sackman and Nair won the Nobel Prize for in the 90s, it's called this patch clamp electrophysiology recording technique. Using that, we can see these synaptic responses in figure 2A. And we see when you look at baseline between males and females, there's no significant difference. So so just in in the control conditions, kind of normal, quote unquote, conditions, we see there's equal kind of amplitude and equal characteristics between males and female rats for the excitatory NMD receptors in these neurons. But if we look at our models of chronic pain, the difference here is in figure 2b, you see there's an increase in excitatory NMD receptor currents in the male rats in that CFA, that inflammatory pain model. Or if you take a kind of in a dish model of chronic pain and just take the spinal cords out of healthy rats and treat them with that, that substance I was talking about that amplifies pain that has previously been identified to drive this mechanism. And that substance is called BDNF. So either the in vivo or in living kind of CFA model or the in a dish BDNF model, they both increase the NMDA receptor responses significantly in male rats in figure 2B. Whereas you don't see that in female rats. So that was the really, so here's that clear evidence where there's no potentiation, no increased NMDA receptor responses in female rats in figure two C here, no significant change. And then once again, just like we did for the CFA inflammatory pain model, we tested for the BDNF in a dish model in female rats. And so in figure two D you see there's no change in those inhibitory markers, KCC2 and step or in the excitatory markers, fin and 2B in these female rats. So once again, there's in the, in the in a dish model, you're not seeing this difference. So we have multiple lines of evidence suggesting this kind of mechanism that not just our lab, but many labs have kind of characterized as being critical for driving increased pain signaling at the level of the spinal cord doesn't seem to be there in female rodents. So at the beginning, I was setting up that if we want new treatments, we need to not just test of these type of mechanisms and potential drug targets. We don't want to just um, uncover them and investigate them in in rodents. We want to see if the same type of mechanisms are occurring in humans. And so I'm really fortunate to be able to partner with a neurosurgeon here in Ottawa that actually I met through a kind of encounter like this. She gave a talk at Carleton University and Dr. Eve Sai is her name. And she was like, could you use human tissue? because i'm a, she's as a neurosurgeon and and with her she's a clinical researcher as well she gets human tissue from organ donors and i should say this is a regulated process that goes after the organ donation process to save lives and improve lives there's a separate ethical consent that the donors and their families agree to, to use tissue for scientific research. And we really take this gift as as a really precious and selfless gift and try to maximize what we can with this spinal cord tissue. And the real advantage is most human tissue studies are from autopsy patients, or sorry, autopsy samples that are many, many hours. If they're, for example, spinal cord, it would be after, it has to be after death. So the tissue can be quite degraded and it's it's not as viable to do experiments on. But in this case, actually, Dr. Sai, even my PhD student, Anne-Marie Dedek, who is the lead author on this study, she's actually directly scrubbed in to the OR. So after the organs are removed, that none of that process is compromised but after that's all done our team can come in and directly take out that spinal cord so that means within one to three hours of the heart stopping we're able to get that tissue and because we're able to get it so quickly it means the health of the tissue is very good and so we can do the same type of approaches that i've just talked about and the reason i kind of wanted to walk you through some of those approaches in terms of the biochemistry and that electrophysiology is we're able to do that on human spinal cord tissue of these organ donors neurologic determination of death or brain dead organ donors and so using that approach you can see here in figure three if we move to figure three we tested whether that same mechanism is occurring in human spinal cord tissue and this is kind of the first first of its kind kind of investigations into human spinal neurons pain processing neurons and what we found is now in a in the in a dish model of pain where we take neighboring regions of spinal cord we treat some with kind of control saline saline solution some with bdnf that pain amplifier at least in rodents what do we see well in figure um, 3a here we see there's this decrease in that inhibitory marker. This, in these experiments, we were doing imaging, looking at KCC2, which is that chloride co, um, co, co-transporter, which when it's lost, you lose the proper inhibition. And you see here in the males in figure A, you lose KCC2 at the membrane and it starts to get trafficked and in, um, it starts to increase in the intracellular compartments, as you see here. And there's pictures in figure 1C of, of that occurring. I'm not going to go into all, sorry, figure 3C, I should say. Whereas in figure 3B, for the females, BDNF causes no change in membrane versus intracellular KCC2. So you don't see that internalization of KCC2 in female spinal cord neurons that you do see in the male spinal cord neurons. So once again, there's this sexually dimorphic mechanism in human tissue that's the same as as what we saw previously in rodents. And then the biochemistry is the same. So in figure 3E, you see this is from the human tissue. When you treat with BDNF, there's no significant changes in those inhibitory, the brake pedal mechanisms, KCC2. And here we have the order, Um, wrong, step. I just realized for the first time in this paper, (laughs) I did the order backwards, it doesn't really matter. Um, KCC2 and step, don't go down. And, and the excitatory markers, fin and gluen 2b don't go up here in, human, in the human spinal cord, where previously we'd already published, we didn't show it again, but in the past paper we showed in the male humans, those markers do change the same way as they do in rodents. So we see the sex difference in pain that's between males and females, where you see this increased in or sorry, decreased inhibition, driving an increase in the excitation in males, but not females, we see that same mechanism both in rodents and in humans. And so the last experiments were investigating what could be causing that. And based on on past studies uh, in the literature, we suspected it could be potentially female sex hormones but during late development a lot of the wiring of the brain there's there's kind of changes and it's called masculinization of the of the brain that's that's driven by differences in in sex hormones between males and females and i should say these are the biological mechanisms there's extra constructs that affect this relating to gender but especially because we're talking a lot of this is animal models we're more talking about sex um in this in this consideration but a lot of that happens, those initial differences in the brain and spinal cord happen really early, like just before birth and just after birth, where in these spinal circuits, actually, a lot of it happens kind of before and after puberty. And so in this case, we took out the ovaries of, of, the, of the rodents before puberty and in female rodents and then let those rats mature. And so when you do that, once again, you see no difference. And so figure 4a shows no difference in the synaptic NMD receptor responses in overectomized versus wild type or, or, or untreated female rats, just like we saw no differences before in male versus female rats. So you see no difference here in figure 4a. But now, when you remove the overectomies, you remove the potential effects of those of those sex hormones before puberty and let that let those rats mature. Now, if you treat the spinal cords from those female overectomized rats, BDNF causes that male-like effect of now BDNF is significantly. So a figure 4B, BDNF in the OVX rats is significantly increasing the synaptic NMD receptor responses. And that increase can be blocked by blocking the one of those excitatory elements, fin. So PP2 is just a blocker of fin. When you block that, then when you block fin, you block the effects of BDNF. So we see the same male like mechanism if we remove the the female sex hormones. So it implies there's a hormonal effect is an effects on the pain circuitry of hormones is what underlies this, this difference in pain processing. And so that's kind of the main take home. If we go back to now our summary diagram, let's kind of end where we, where we started here on figure five. And so what the kind of main conclusion here is the, even though there's pain hypersensitivity sensitivity in both male and female rats, the mechanisms that drive that can be different. And so in males, we have this BDNF mediated coupling between the loss of, of breaks KCC2 and stepped, the increased gas pedal mechanisms, fin and glun 2B, you have that in males on on the B panel, but you don't have that in females, both for our rodent models and our human tissue models. And that seems to be mediated by female sex hormones. That's what's shown here in in panel D. And so we use multiple models of that, inflammatory pain models in a dish BDNF models. I'm looking at panel E here. But we have yet to investigate whether there's same differences in models of neuropathic pain, which is another type of chronic pain. And the other big question is, well, what's driving that hypersensitivity in females? So follow-up research, we're looking at the underlying mechanisms that might be causing this same increased spinal excitability in females that, that drives chronic pain. And that could help us understand those differences, identify potential drug targets that work for one or both sexes. And so back to the big picture goal here, this, we hope this contributes to fundamental understanding that can lead to the understanding of, of signaling related to chronic pain. And hopefully one day the the better and more effective treatment of, of chronic pain in humans. So I thank you all for, for your time and patience as we've walked through this, and I look forward to hearing your questions
5: thank you so much this was such a wonderful talk and it's really interesting that um, electrophysiology responses still make you happy because <laughs> electrophysiology um when i did the rotation was what made me stay in neuroscience <laughs> it was the coolest thing you put something on the bath and then it changes awesome fascinating so like uh, awesome I, it's, it's an immediate reward right if you do yeah. it right it. you see it
1: you see it on the screen yeah it's i kind of it's the analogy of fishing you have to have patience because it can be frustrating and right like can take time but when you get that reward when you see that response on the screen there's there's nothing better and it's easier for me to say now because i'm not in the trenches <laughs> it's my students doing it so i can walk up and just see the reward without having to have the patience <laughs> so that's the one thing i have to remember although i should say with these human tissue i still we do uh, my students and i record together on those because they're such precious tissue that we try to maximize their chances
5: yeah that's amazing i never had the chance to record from human tissue but um that's interesting yeah it's it's cool and um i uh i wanted to ask you so do you have (laughs) for any like are you now working on what the female um possible mechanism is now like
1: yes exactly yeah so we're we're looking at the underlying and there is some other research groups like in the states and and other researchers that there's some kind of candidates for might what might be driving the mechanisms there's one compound called CGRP so so the one we talked about today was BDNF but CGRP calcitonin gene related protein it's linked to increased pain processing and preferentially in females actually and there is current in terms of clinical relevance there are anti CGRP new treatments on the market right now for migraine at least so so it is it's definitely clinically relevant and so Right now, we're investigating at the level of the spinal cord, whether CGRP might be driving some of these increased excitability in females versus males. So that's one example.
5: So um, is there a way to then block BDNF locally? Or is there also, is there also because some people get chronic pain, others don't, and, and some are really extremely at risk, and others are not. Um do you think it's a difference in how responsive the neurons are to BDNF or is there also a difference in some people in BDNF yeah. BDM levels?
1: Those are those are great questions. So the first one was kind of blocking BDNF. And so that is the tricky thing with any of these kind of I should say this is one mechanism too. There's lots of other mechanisms, so it's not like I'm saying all oh, pain is caused by this. This is one mechanism that could be contributing, but blocking BDNF, the problem is BDNF has critical roles of for learning and mechanisms of learning and, and plasticity in the brain. So some of these parts of the mechanism we wouldn't wanna target therapeutically. But one example in this mechanism of something we could potentially target is that molecule I was talking about KCC2. It's a chloride co-transporter. When you lose it, you lose the balance of inhibition. And there's actually, a, Currently in clinical or at least pharmaceutical development activators or enhancers of KCC2 that are being tested out. So that's one of the parts of the pathway that might kind of be the best fit for potential new treatments. Then you asked about differences between between individuals. Absolutely. There can be slight like what are called as polymorphisms in any of these genes, or environment can sometimes affect right there can be epigenetic changes. And so there's definite individualized um, levels of signaling from person to person for for some of these type of mechanisms. And it's not in this in this mechanism, but an example of that is one of the sodium channels. So that involves in the action potentials, the electrical signaling within pain signaling neurons, what a change in one individual amino acid in that sodium channel can cause this rare um, genetic syndrome where where patients with that mutation lose all ability to sense pain and then there's other mutations that increase the channel activity and those ones uh, there's actually patients that have just kind of this persistent chronic pain so it shows how even small genetic changes in any of these molecules involved in these pathways can definitely cause differences in in pain sensation from person to person. So yeah, great questions.
5: Yeah, thank you so much for answering those. And uh, one last question, is there anyone, like, did people look into if people um, that have more tendencies to chronic pain also have higher abilities in synaptic plasticity memory, or is it very different in the peripheral, like, is the neuron type it's, is it not, in general, in neurons from
1: a person yeah. be affected? Or- That's a, actually a fabulous question. I'd never thought of it. I don't know if anyone, and I think we're too early to know. There are definitely some differences in these spinal circuits, like the types of NMD receptors. So I was talking about those excitatory glutamate receptors, NMD receptors we're looking at here. The types that are at the spinal synapses, are very different from the brain. They're actually more like the types of receptors that are in the very young brain where you have increased excitability. And my theory is that's why you have this kind of propensity to lose control of balance of excitability in these spinal pain signaling circuits. So there are some differences between the two. And so maybe it wouldn't carry over, but, but then there are some properties like these type of mechanisms that do happen in the brain as well. So some things are the same, some things are different.
5: Is there um maybe also a so is there a mouse model where you could check you know, there's the switch of uh GABA to be um excitatory to inhibitory yes. and that's a lot dependent on the K C C Yeah, exactly. Um, is there a difference, maybe? In, I don't know. In maybe a mouse model, uh, that um, they the switch is delayed or um, something like that, or maybe earlier on, in, um, in and
1: and that maybe
5: it stays more excitable, and some neurons that the switch never goes. Yeah. <laughs>
1: That's a really good question and good thoughts of because if you're changing that KCC2, right, that proper inhibition, um, or at least in, in later development, proper inhibition, is critical for increased excitability early. Does that affect kind of these kind of mechanisms? And I don't know, but that's a really good, that's something we could look at. So that's a really good thought that we could look at that type of literature and see what's happening. Keeping in mind, that's mostly in the brain, those switches. we don't We don't know as much about the spinal cord and actually what. In separate um, experiments my lab's doing, it looks like the type of molecular switches and developmental switches you're talking about right now that occur in the brain in the first few weeks of life, at least for rodents, for the spinal circuits, it's much later in life. And even that last figure I showed you about the sex hormones is more puberty. And so it looks like actually developmental changes in in the spinal cord occur kind of across adolescence into adulthood. And we're thinking that might also kind of shed light on why kind of the prevalence and propensity for chronic pain increases as we age. And so we're really, that's another line of research in our lab is trying to figure out those mechanisms kind of at a molecular level that, that change across later development in these circuits.
5: Interesting. So if there's maybe a stressor um, during, since there's a longer maybe, um, timeline of fragility or vulnerability um would, would it be interesting maybe to look at to stress some mice out and then see if that somehow also affects the kcc2 levels um,
1: yeah yeah yep yeah. yep yeah. that could see the because mecha- there definitely is research showing that our experience shape us as we've been talking about and there's research showing whether stressors or even small, like you think of neo, like prenatal babies, how they have all those interventions, right? Like the heel um, pricks they need for testing. Well, now they're trying to reduce those numbers because it's been shown in, in humans and in in and in animal models that those small injuries in early life can increase the propensity and prevalence of of, of increased pain responses in later life. And so that's a good point of thinking of the underlying mechanisms of that, how that could kind of relate to things like this, like kcc 2 Yes, absolutely. Those are good thank ideas you as so well. Much.
5: <laughs> I'll give the the floor to everyone else. Uh, please flash your mic. I have a lot of more questions, but uh, you know, I don't want to take advantage. So Brian, Abyss, um, yeah, go ahead.
7: Hey Mike, thank you so much uh for this wonderful talk it really touched my heart because I actually am a pain patient and for the last four years I've been reading uh, studies about uh, wind-up phenomena in the dorsal horn and this vicious uh, substance P-glutamate cycle and you know I I really have to say I've been very confused Uh, it seems like at least maybe I was reading older literature there's not that much from what I could tell consensus please clarify me if I'm wrong about kind of what type of unlearning processes can occur like if long-term depression you know happens and a lot of the papers seem to think ketamine is kind of this like gold standard this glutamate blocking but uh, for myself and the other few people with this very rare kind of corneal neuralgia disease we all you know did these high dose ketamine infusions very very high dose and we all thought we kind of got better like everything went away and then within a few weeks of the last infusion, all of us had our pain completely regress. So we're all taking yeah. our triptaline or Lyrica yeah. or low dose naltrexone. So I was kind of wondering yeah. where you thought we stood on, like, is it central sensitization reversible? Does it depend on the patient population, the condition? I mean, I'm kind of confused parsing the literature. I'm definitely no specialist. I'm just uh, playing yeah. pace and trying to learn this stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I think, like you say, a lot of these mechanisms can be very condition and and syndrome specific. I should also say up front, I am not a clinician. I am a, I have a PhD and and mostly animal-based research, so I definitely don't want to kind of give the illusion that in terms of medical advice, treatment advice. But what you're saying, I think, could be could be the case that you can reverse some of these things, but they can be persistent, right? So, during a treatment, something like ketamine, which acts, but we also need to think, ketamine acts on many different targets, especially I think at high doses. And MDA is thought to be one of them, but there's other um, kind of targets that 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 could be involved as well. So during the treatment, it's just like if you have a local lidocaine nerve block, right? Those kind of things, you're, you're dampening that excitability for a while, but does that just dampen it or does it truly reverse it? And so I think, I think that was kind of the essence of your question. My, my answer, I guess, is we don't totally know yet. Right. And, and so, especially depending on the, the specific neurons we're thinking about that, I think in some cases that once that excitability, it can be really kind of it can persist even after once the treatments are removed that uh, you can have that that excited increased excitability coming back
7: yeah thanks so much Uh, is there anything you think like in the pipeline that looks lucrative like the next 10 20 years down the road i think you said something about uh the gene calcitron i I don't know how to say like you said it i I can't remember kcc2
1: i was talking about well cgrp no i was talking about cgrp sorry C, yeah, CGRP, calcitonin gene-related p- p- um, peptide. That's more for migraine. So that's a good one for migraine. So if you, there's anti-CGRP medications, kind of new frontline medications that, that I'm pretty sure on the market are close to it. Um, and I think it's not clear how much those will work for pain. And once again, the other thing I should say is I kind of talked about chronic pain as one umbrella term, whereas in reality, and as you know, and I'm sorry to hear of your your suffering, Brian, I should say that up front. Um, that's yeah, It can be very debilitating, but every condition can have s- separate cause. So this is one mechanism, but f- from a neuralgia to a neuropathic pain to fibromyalgia, right? To all these conditions, the underlying mechanisms could differ or they contribute in different ways. And so I think that's part of it too, is that yes, we need this broad knowledge, but then we need the specific knowledge too, and more personalized um, um targeted kind of therapeutics of of what's occurring in specific conditions and then in the in those conditions across variables like different sex and, and those other kind of things to really hone it down to figure out what treatments will be best for the each individual
7: yeah thanks so much
1: yeah, it's and thank you for tuning in and, and and well done in terms of just your reading and and, and discovery with this and I don't know if you have found there's some really at least in Canada over here we have some really good patient kind of advocacy and, and support groups and some of that can be helpful too even just to get connected with like-minded
7: yeah, yeah I'm in Toronto so I'm in touch with Karen Davies and the Canadian okay cancer. yes excellent and then
1: the, the not the chronic pain pain Canada just came online in the last few weeks so that's a good. I think they have it's a good online um resource that has that has different things so yeah karen's fabulous
5: i believe yeah Abis, go ahead
2: Karen. Okay, um hi mike um great presentation sorry i came in late to the no discussion problem. i don't know if you actually talked about this but i'm really interested if it's um like you mentioned something about um removing the um different sex hormone generating organs, and then like uh, testing if the BDNF expression is yeah. on par with what you see in the wild type. I'm also interested if you actually um, isolated FSH like follicle stimulating hormones and their effect on BDNF expression as well.
1: Yeah, we haven't done those kind of individual looking at the different hormones. This was kind of really early. And I should say these experiments were done right before the pandemic. It's an example of where the reality of life can impact science. And then our lab got shut down. And so we kind of concluded these experiments because Anne-Marie, the lead student, she was finishing her thesis. So we definitely have follow-up experiments to do looking at individual hormones like estrogen fsh prolactin and also in males to look at the effects of testosterone to really try to unpack what's happening to this circuitry across um for all of these but no that's a great question
5: if i may is it okay if i um we had a guest speaker here a few months ago i don't know if anyone else remembers but he talked about um um of his age, um, related to Alzheimer's. Um, okay. So it, he was at MRI and he's now back in, his, you know, professor for twenty years. But now he's back in his hometown in China doing research there, uh, and um, it contributes um, largely to Alzheimer's in women. Uh, so when he blocked um, that hormone, he could basically. Um, if it was early enough rescue and and avoid like further alzheimer's damage okay. um, animals so i don't know if it's directly related because you said it, there's a huge difference or there is a difference between the spinal cord or peripheral neurons and um, the, the brain neurons but i don't know if that could be an yeah no. that you know, it kind of blocks BDNF effect, and then maybe it contributes to Alzheimer's but also protects from pain, maybe (laughs) it's childbirth related, I don't know, (laughs) something like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, thanks. No, that's a good, that's a good lead in terms of thinking of, because some of these things in the brain too, in FSA, Alzheimer's actually one of the other candidates in this pathway step. Changes in step balance can also relate to Alzheimer's as well. So it shows when we have kind of these kind of players that can be involved in many physiological processes. And then when they're not kind of regulated at the right level, can lead to various pathological processes.
2: Yeah, no, that's a great point. Thank you. I had a question. I'm curious yeah. if, um, and I'm not sure how you'd even do the experiments, but um has it been looked at in terms in the human case in terms of transgender patients and whether uh, that are taking hormone replacement therapy whether there's a change in mechanism that is induced uh over the course of treatment?
1: no and that's a fabulous question serena i think this is early the per, that's something an area actually Anne Marie, the lead author on this who's now postdoc that's an area she's definitely identified as wanting to take this we need For donors, because they're organ donors, they're typically, um, they're small numbers and just kind of probabilities. We haven't had transgender, but in terms of replacement therapy, that's that's a good question, too. I think it would depend when, because what we think is going on, that is kind of early development through puberty, that kind of sets the stage. So after that, because, for example, our donors, some of them were kind of, women aged women so it would be menopausal and we don't see at least we don't have numbers to do full kind of stats on this but we didn't see big differences between kind of pre and post-menopausal women at least according to age we would presume we don't um, have the full medical so i would think that it might be conserved but those are the kind of that's the kind of research we need in the biomedical field there's so little on transgender um Potential differences and and hormone replacement therapies, and so maybe we can even use some of our models to look at hormone replacement therapies, even in some of these preclinical models, to at least see and, and investigate how these mechanisms may be the same or different across across gender. So, yes, thank you for that,
2: that great question. Thank you.
5: And please place your mics if you have a question. Dr. Shah, um, I know you didn't get a chance to ask yet. Jamie, Dr. Shah, go ahead.
4: I, uh, so thank you so much, Mike. That was a fascinating work. I mean, actually, a couple of the points came to my mind after just listening to, to you. So we know that we have a different type of the KCC. I mean, we have a KCC1 and KCC2. And I was just wondering about, I mean, GABA receptor. I mean, in relation with the KCC and did you notice any, uh, I mean, changes during, I mean, your experiment for the dendritic expiration, is your, I mean, in rats or not?
1: Yeah, yeah. so the other side, the inhibitory side in terms of GABA receptors, we haven't looked at that. From what I remember the literature, I don't think there's big changes, at least in these neurons. So it's more the KCC, the loss of the proper gradient for GABA receptors because the kcc2 the transporters and kcc1 the other kind of chloride regulator seems to be unchanged in these models so it's more specific to kcc2 and from what i remember GABA receptor expression doesn't change um significantly but i could be wrong on that but that's that's at least but yeah that's a good reminder for me to go back and, and look at that long term i should say even though expression doesn't you can have it at the circuit level changes in the balance between, you can even lose inhibitory interneurons, so GABAergic neurons. Yeah, in terms of the synapse, you can also lose GABAergic synapses. So there are, in other models and other other, um, studies, some evidence to suggest those kind of rewiring and takes place, but probably more for kind of like neuropathic pain rather than something kind of more acute, like these inflammatory pain models.
4: So do you think that in relation with the interneuron, is that possible that the male, for example, gender, more susceptible to the, I mean, kind of things like a seizure or such a thing?
1: So that would be the brain, like would they be, the males be more susceptible to seizure? It hasn't been looked at whether these kind of mechanisms, because some of these elements like ACC2 are linked to, for example, things like epilepsy in the brain. But it has, and I was actually speaking to an expert on that, Kai Kayla. he's in um, Finland. He reached out to me about after this paper came out. And I was asking him whether that's been investigated in the brain. And from what he could recall in terms of potential differences, male, female, it hasn't been. So I think that some of the next steps in some of this research is looking at kind of this underlying neurophysiology in the brain and are there are there some sex differences relating to some of these things because I think we're really I was surprised at least when I was looking at the literature relating to NMD receptors like over 90% of the research is all male only or where they don't say the sex of the animals so I really think we have a lot of catching up to do and a lot will be the same like we've seen and shown right there will be a lot you'd expect there to be a lot of things that are conserved, but I think there will be some significant differences that that could really help us further understand the processing in the brain as well.
4: For sure. Thank you so much. Um, yeah,
5: go ahead.
2: Sorry. So, um, I'm kind of curious, like, do, is there a study that actually looked and in, looked into the s- different subunits in the central and peripheral nervous system and how, like BDNF and um NMDA receptors actually are, are um sort, of purposed in in different you know neurons either in the central nervous system can be like in you know, cortical systems, or or um or ganglion in the um peripheral. Peripheral uh, peripheral nervous system. So I'm just wondering if there if some if you looked into the you know differences in the subunits, or if somebody else has. Yeah, yeah, we're doing that actually as we speak. I have a master's student, actually several
1: students on on that looking at the different subtypes of NMDA receptors that are expressed, and so in general in in the spinal cord. So because there are different subtypes, and that has therapeutic relevance because one of those subtypes is kind of highly. Ex- functional and is really a slow decaying so it really can lead to pain amplification and that's found in the spinal cord but not in the brain it's called gluin 2 d so that could that could relate and then your kind of second question is in individual types of neurons in these systems and yes that's kind of another it's another technology single cell um rna sequencing that that we can do now where we can look at the specific genes that are expressed in one type of neuron or cell versus another. And so we've actually partnered with a researcher at NIH, Dr. Ariel Levine, who's an expert in, in that type of single cell sequencing approach. And so we're doing that on human spinal cord right now to look at the different subtypes in our case, look at many targets, but in our case, the subtypes of NMD receptors and the levels of those receptors in various different types of neurons in the spinal, ca- in the spinal cord. And comparing that then to male and female rodents, which has previously been done for sequence, address exactly that differences by cell to cell in the spinal cord. And like you say, that same kind of work can be done and is being done in the periphery by other groups, but not by us.
5: Would you also be interested in looking in um, methylation levels um, uh, around genes that express KCC and the diff- and the NM?
1: Yeah, in terms of epigenetic, that would be a good <laughs> kind of step. We haven't kind of gone there. There's so much to do that, and I don't have a, that big of a team, and that's kind of beyond my expertise, but that would be a great another thing to do. Yep, methylation to look at kind of epigenetic regulation. We're also thinking splice variants of some of these targets. That's another area. In terms of the various variants of of some of these receptors and and how that could relate to their activity as well so some of the
2: genetic approaches for that that we're thinking of as well but we haven't we haven't looked at methylation no.
5: there's a pretty easy cheap version to do it you treat the dna with i forgot the name and it switches out the the t um, okay. Yeah. Uh, I have to look it up. It's really easy, and then you just do sequencing again. Okay. And then you know if it's uh, if that region of interest is met was methylated or not. Like it's okay. a really old cheap version that they use. Some no, time. that's sometimes
1: that's up. the. I think we sometimes get a little too enthralled with the fanciest and the flashiest tools, but sometimes those old kind of tried and true approaches can be powerful. Well, even some of the techniques here, you've seen this paper, right? They're not fancy optogenetics or, right? But they they, they, they can do the job and answer some pretty important questions. Katerina.
5: It's bisulfite, sorry. Ah, I like today, my brain doesn't work. It's bisulfite, if you want to okay. look like it up. It's yeah, really, I will. pretty straightforward.
3: Thanks.
7: So, I guess I had another question. Uh, last year, I was reading Cajal's really old book. Uh, I think it's called Degeneration and Regeneration of the Nervous System. And even yeah. there, like over 100 years ago, he speaks about how um, some type of damage in the periphery can cause a reorganization uh, in the spinal cord. And he speaks all about like uh, these neurotrophic factors and chemotractants, kind of talking about like this neuroregenerative process from the growth cone when you have these kind of peripheral yes. injuries. And I was wondering, um, in these kind of animal models, where you have kind of all these different methods of causing different kind of insults in the periphery yeah. to cause this type of uh, wind-up or, you know, central spinal cord, dorsal horn pain, has anyone done kind of interventions and maybe even like some type of imaging at the same time, where in those interventions, they tried to use some type of like, I don't know, like uh, I guess some of the tissue engineering guys, I've seen some papers about like uh, silk threads where they try to create like a nerve growth factor gradient to kind of create like some type of chemotractant bias, similar to, I guess what the normal neurotrophic factors would do, but to try to really like, you know, aid the regenerative process. And they were actually able to maybe like through that intervention, stop that kind of central sensitization in the second order, you know, dorsal horn neurons from winding up and the whole kind of, you know, inflammatory neuroinflammatory process from beginning, or is that something that, you know, like hasn't had much success, like some type of attempts with interventions in these, you know, specific animal models.
1: Yeah. I don't know if it's being tried in the context of pain because the issue is a lot of those neurotrophins, like BDNF, they're increasing, right? So I guess like you if you're adding them, you'd be potentially amplifying pain. I think the context of where they can work, or at least they could be more kind of related therapeutics, is spinal cord injury, right? Where you have damage and that's where the regeneration, right, can happen. And that's I think some of the once again the yin and yang of those is those factors that can increase the regeneration often as a side effect, they can cause the rewiring that will increase the pain as well. So in terms of strategies for that, I don't know if it worked. The one kind of strategy that kind of gets at what you're talking about, the structural reorganization uh, that's occurring in, in the pain states and how do you kind of block that or alter that are inducing potential stem cells that lead to inhibitory neurons and so at least in animal models there's been a little bit of work relating to that alan bassbaum who's kind of a pioneer in the pain field he's he has at least some proof of concept studies where they put in stem cells i think they're cortical stem cells though um but inhibitory and they integrated at least to some level within these dorsal horn circuits and they did decrease pain once again in rodents and in, in mice, but at least showing at least in principle, there might be ways to, to try to help address, like you're saying, that, that kind of structural reorganization that can occur to these circuits um, that, that can lead to long-term changes.
7: Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. really interesting. And you're absolutely right. Like uh, for my corneal neuralgia condition, there's only a few doctors in the world treating it. The main guy is at Harvard who I see. And his treatment plan involves kind of autologous serum or um, kind of platelet-rich plasma because they both kind of have some nerve growth factors and inflammatory factors. And many patients, including myself, do report an increase of pain while we're on it. But it does seem to be that there is some type of regeneration in the periphery. Where even though there's already the rewiring and the central pathways we do still get some relief it's definitely not what we wish we were getting but it does help so i don't know it just what you said seems to match up pretty well yeah. with like what, what's happening with the patients right now yeah
1: and i get what you're saying now i totally get that yeah you're saying there's damage in the injury the neuralgias in the periphery so those troph- neurotrophic factors are addressing that but then you're saying so so short-term that might work or well, they could work for addressing that, but it could have other effects too in other parts of the pathway. No, that makes sense to me. No,
3: it's really interesting.
5: Um, Do you expect that um, the glia cells um are also involved in this since, um, yes, I mean, since they are involved in probably BDNF-level regulation, I'm, I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> I don't know much about the periphery, to be honest. That's how, yeah. how specialized we are now. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there is there any indications that um, GLIER also I guess at least in the inflammatory response, but um, do they contribute somehow to this um chronic pain?
1: One hundred percent. Yes, they release. Maybe not in this in this mechanism. At least that looks like it's prevalent in males. The theory is at least for nerve injury or neuropathic pain, it's microglia that are that are releasing the BDNF in males, but not as much in in, in females. But there's also lots of research indicating glial release of cytokines and interactions with NMDH. Actually, the interaction with NMDH receptors isn't as clear. So that's another direction that our lab needs to still kind of move in is seeing the glia to neuron crosstalk and how that could be involved. Because, yes, there is evidence to suggest they have a vital role and they interact with certain subtypes of, of neurons within the dorsal horn pain processing circuit. So lots of work to be done there as well. And once again lots of work especially when we think of both sexes because i think a lot of that original work was once again done
2: probably historically a lot of it was done to males so
5: very interesting thank you so much i wanted to check with you since we are now going over an hour and it's getting kind of late um if you know i want to give you the opportunity to get rid of us
1: (laughs) Yeah, I have a couple more minutes if there's a couple more questions and then add a bit. Um, jet lag is starting to kick in, I realized yeah. after. Yeah, I was in Italy, so the time changed. Oh my but god,
5: really yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but this has been really great. This has been a lot of fun. So if there's a couple more questions, I have time to hang around here.
5: Right. Yeah. Uh, Shane, uh, you didn't get that chance. Or wisdom? would you like to ask a question? Or Jamie, uh, Victoria, Cicero, him? All are very shy today.
1: (laughs)
7: No, I get it. Yeah,
5: go
2: ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I don't have a question, but uh, this has been a
1: wonderful uh, talk, uh, very informative. Um, Yeah, thank you. Awesome. Thanks for the kind words, Shane.
5: Yeah, Denise, go ahead.
2: Same same from me. Uh, No questions. It was really fascinating. A lot to chew on from my end because this is Um, I'm still learning this stuff. So thank you so much. Thank you.
5: Okay. Um, Yeah, then thank you so much, Mike. And I apologize for all the beginning hiccups. Um, I hope you you enjoyed it nevertheless. And we really appreciate (laughs) that you took the time. It was such a informative talk and it's so important work because i have a dear friend of mine that's also suffering from severe chronic pain and um yeah um you know i heard also from other people in the back uh channel that listening to researchers like you working on this gives people hope and also your very inspiring um career path that you followed your curiosity was really amazing so uh thank you so much and we wish you all the funding and
0: yes.
5: <laughs> <laughs> a lot of uh, lab members um <laughs> and um yeah that that everything goes well and and you your lab grows and your research grows and you come back and share updates with us that would be would, the yeah. coolest thing <laughs>
1: I'd be honoured thank you. This was a lot of fun. This my first time on Club Clubhouse here and it was a lot of fun. And thank you all for coming out in this evening in this evening session.
3: May I also just say, doctor, thank you so much for an incredible talk. And I have made a point to contact multiple friends of mine who are suffering from chronic pain. And I'm going to have them listen to this room. And I know they're going to find it very validating and, um, and important to know that someone is in their corner and doing this much study and work. To helping them so thank you very very much for that and thank you for being here today thank you Jamie.
7: thank you so much and thank you katarina for hosting this room i think because this is so personal for me this might be the best room i've ever attended on clubhouse so really thank you
5: oh thank you yeah we we really appreciate that you came and asked your questions and uh, they were so interesting so uh, thank you for being part of this here today excellent okay okay so, yeah. <laughs> and then have a good night i uh, hope you you don't have too much of a jet lag in the next few days and um yeah thank you so much and thank you everyone for coming asking great questions uh, follow the club if you like discussions like this maybe we can get mike back <laughs> <laughs> and so, Yeah, come back and um, yeah, we really appreciate everyone here, and of course, a special thanks to you, Mike. And uh, have a good night, good morning, evening, wherever you are around the world, and um, yeah, enjoy. (laughs) Bye,
1: okay, thank you,
3: bye. Also, on behalf of Doctor, on behalf of Science Society, please congratulate your son on an excellent win at soccer. Oh, right. yeah, yeah, I will do that. He's, he's asleep
1: now, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell him in the morning that he's that got people around the world uh, celebrating that big win.
3: <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Perfect. Take care.
5: OK, three, two, one. Bye, everyone.